Hey, and welcome to episode five of Coffee Chats with Ryan. Um, I'm on Apple Podcasts now, so if you want to go check me out on there, you can subscribe. You can not subscribe, but I'd appreciate it. That was stupid. Hey, welcome to episode five of Coffee Chats with Ryan. I'm now on Apple Podcasts, so if you want to go check me out on there, please do. I believe between Apple Podcasts and Spotify, that covers at least 90, 95% of everybody who listen to podcasts nowadays. Um, it seems to be kind of focused on a couple apps. Today, my guest is Phil Brunette. He founded a veterinary startup when he was young, um, and he has since moved on to pursuing further education in psychology. And we do touch base. He gives us kind of the story of his startup from start to finish and why he decided to leave that space entirely and venture off into psychology. Um, from there, I ask him about any books that he's read recently. He gives us some recommendations. We start discussing the kind of the topics and the ideas behind some of them. Um, we briefly touch on philosophy and our mediocre at best golf game. Uh, so yeah, here's the always interesting Phil Burnett. So we'll start off. What are you drinking? I am drinking Four Sigmatic. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm actually the first guest on your podcast to have a cup of coffee with you, right? Yep. Yep. You are. Everybody's some kind of alcohol normally. Uh, Zachariah said tea, but yeah, you're the first first person to have coffee. That's funny. But still, I, I went a little fancy here and had the Four Sigmatic mushroom coffee, which is actually fantastic. Have you had it? I've not had that or any mushroom coffee it's super, at all. Is, yeah, it's, it's super good? good. Let me read you the packaging here. I brought it down just so I could read it to you. It's it's really good. It says, your brain's best friend, not just orga organic Arabica coffee, but also your brain's BFF, lion's made mushroom for a smooth cup of elevated coffee. So um, go to Four Sigmatic, 20% off, uh, use code Phil. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's so podcasty of me. Yeah, I just yeah, plug yeah. a coffee brand right in the first two minutes. I was gonna say, I was gonna say, give it a little bit more time, and we'll see what kind of coffee brands we can we can get plugs for. Is it defined that the taste of the mushroom coffee is like mushroomy? No, it's not mushroom. I hate mushrooms. Actually, it's just a little bit earthy. Um, it, it's really good. Okay. It doesn't taste nasty. I I was quite uh, apprehensive when I first heard of mushroom coffee, but I gave it a try, and it's actually quite delicious. Do you use a French press to make it? Uh, yeah, an arrow press. Do you find that it's acidic at all? Because I know I've I've put uh, salt in the coffee grinds before making it in the past to kind of cut down on the acidity um, of some of the meh or coffees. That's, I've never heard that, but no, it's not acidic at all. Actually, it's quite, uh, it's full, but it's not bitter in any way. I'll, I'll bring uh, you some next time. They have some weird elixirs as well that are they're kind of like teas and they use different kinds of mushrooms, some for like relaxation, some for sleep, some for productivity. And yeah, anyways, enough. I'm not trying to sell you Four Sigmatic, but I like it a lot. Yeah, no need to sell me on coffee. I am somebody who will always take a, a coffee when offered, but mushrooms is is a little different inside my coffee. I'm still getting used to mushrooms. I mean, both Lee and I weren't the biggest fans of mushrooms, and we've slowly started uh, incorporating into our diets. We started with it like diced up into small little chunks and putting it in curries and stuff where we wouldn't really taste the flavor. And I'm proud to say that we've now graduated to the point where uh, we'll have large slices of them in, in stir fries or... Uh, We'll have some sliced up mushrooms and some butter on top of our steaks, and we can eat them that way. Mm -hmm. You're cutting in a bit of in and out, so if I miss your question, I'll just ask you to repeat it. No worries. I'll try keeping my phone unplugged. My phone's a little, uh, a little old, and it's um, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really want to plug in anymore. So I have to use a wireless charger for everything. What do you mean? You don't want to invest $10,000 in a podcast setup after four episodes? Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was looking at a USB um, mic that I can plug into my phone or something like that. And I'm just like, you know what? I'm eventually going to get a desktop computer anyway. So I'll just get a, uh, I'll just get something I can plug into my desktop computer for like 50 bucks off Amazon and go from there. I have a friend of mine that he, episode two, um, it's, that's bad that I don't know what episode it was. I got like a month. <laughs> You've already done so many episodes, you're losing track. But uh, yeah, my buddy Nash has uh, his podcast. Well, he's more behind the scenes now, but he was saying he did a couple, I guess they started at Carlton with like the full setup. And he goes, yeah, it's it's quite nice. Um, and the audio quality will definitely, there'll probably be a noticeable difference if, I ever, difference if I ever do get an actual mic. 
Um, cause right now I'm just using my phone and hoping for the best. I tried the earbuds and, uh, the audio quality was shit. Yeah. Yeah. Are you hoping to do this in person once it becomes legal to do so again? Yeah. And it, it's kind of funny because the, our house has like on the entryway, it's all tiled and Leah was first set up down there in her home office, but she was finding in the summer and winter, it was just too cold because the AC would kind of sit there. And then in the winter, the heat would go up and they would just be frozen. It just be terribly cold in that little office. Um, so Leah was laughing. She's like, yeah, if you want, we can just turn it into like a little reading nook almost with two chairs and you can have uh, a podcast set up there for when people, people can talk um, until we move out of this house. But yeah, hopefully eventually in person, whether it be, you know, on a couch or chairs or whatever, but in person would be a lot easier too, because I find over the phone, you get the awkward, um, talking over each other in the awkward breaks. So if I'm stopping to think about something really quick in person, you can see, I'm trying to think and say something, but like over the phone, you might not get it. Uh, and that's been kind of a learning process, especially by the way, if there's any awkward pauses, don't worry, I can cut them out. So the people listening will hear me talk about awkward pauses, but they won't (laughs) actually hear as I go through after any pauses that are too long, I'll just kind of nick them out because nobody wants to be listening to silence for five seconds. Yeah, there, there's a bit of a latency, which ends up causing some a couple of people talking over each other. But uh, yeah, I also take like five seconds before I start answering a question. So yeah, I'm sure there will be some pauses that you can go crazy and edit out. Oh, no worries. It's, it's, it's going live to the internet, right? So you're going to be held accountable for this in 20, 30 years. Man, 30,000 people are going to hear this conversation. I should have prepared more. I know 30,000 people, but the three people that listen are just going to listen to it over and over and over and over again. 10,000. <laughs> just crank up those ratings. Come on guys. So tell me about the startup and all of that kind of adventure. Cause I think that's going to be, that's interesting to me. Cause I don't think we've talked about yeah, it before. For sure. Can I give you the long winded answer? Cause I think some context might shed some light on to how I found myself to, to launch my own startup there. A hundred percent go for the long winded answer. That's why I kind of, like specific i like the podcast that lasts more than five minutes or an interview on tv that lasts 30 seconds doesn't quite get the story across so go for the long-winded answer yeah for sure and feel free to to interrupt me at any point if i'm monologuing but um essentially my involvement with startups started right around 16 when i was 16 years old i created my first company called hole in one golf tournaments and that was a monumentous failure so i was trying to sell Um, golf tournament packages to corporations and charities so i'd go to these large businesses excuse me businesses like future shop at the time and i would just go up to them be like hey i know you guys have a big corporate golf tournament let me organize it for you um two big learnings there turns out big corporations don't trust 16 year olds to organize their corporate tournaments (laughs) and b the people that are in charge of organizing it actually really freaking like doing it so they get paid to organize a golf tournament and you know, coordinate with all the suppliers and all that stuff. They love that. So for me to come in there and try to take that away from them, they were they were ready to fight me. So it, that <laughs> did not work out. I ended up organizing a grand total of zero golf tournaments that summer. Um, but I did learn a lot. So I was in a program called the Summer Company Program. It's a uh, government of Ontario program. And they give you mentoring every two weeks. And then, you know, you're able to stay in touch with the mentors after that. They give you a bit of seed money and stuff like that. So... Um, I learned a lot from that program and I actually followed one of the mentors that I met at Invest Ottawa to his own startup. Um, He was running a company in the real estate space. I did that for a little bit. And from there, I I learned the importance of like being super careful when you choose your business partners, because I saw what happens when two founders divorce. So um, the children are not happy when that happens. And um, so, yeah, that company was eventually dissolved literally because the two founders couldn't agree on the vision and the mission of the company. So um, from there, I I went to another startup in Vancouver and that was in the tours and activity space. So they had a software product to um, help photo sales in a tours and activity uh, space. So did that for a while. And then that company ended up moving out to Waterloo and I was still working for, for said company. And I met my now co-founder cash, um, K-A-S-H. I met Cash at a networking event and she's a veterinarian and a data scientist. And she's telling me, I have these awesome ideas. I just don't know how to run a business. And, you know, being the overzealous 22 year old that I was, I was like, man, I know how to run a business. Turns out did not know how to run a business. Nobody actually, that's the biggest secret, man. Nobody actually knows what they're doing in startups. 
like 99% of the time, nobody knows what they're doing. Um, but anyways, I thought I knew what I was doing and I started helping out cash on the side. Uh, she had a couple prototypes. We ended up pitching it to some incubators. We got into an incubator at the University of Guelph, um, got a bit of funding, prototyped it, and then took it to market and went to conferences, talked to other veterinarians, uh, other people in the industry, and people's reaction were just meh. And I, I've talked a lot about this with, with other people in the, in the industry and what you're looking for when you're first, you know, doing your validation is you want a hell yes or a hell no. Right. And the fact that mm -hmm. we got super lukewarm responses was extremely alarming to us. Um, so we went, we went back to the drawing board where like we, we have um, some strong talent here. We believe in the team. Let's see um, where we can take this. So what we did is we actually interviewed probably about, 60, 70 veterinarians with a completely open set of questions. We asked them, what are your issues? Um, where do you think the industry is going to be shifting towards in the future? Um, you know, what do you think software can help you guys out with? And we kept hearing one thing over and over again. And they kept saying, we need help with the adoption of preventative care. So preventative care is anything that is not an emergency. So your shots for your dogs, urinary tests, dental work, all that stuff, right? So they were telling us, you know, we really need a lot of help getting the adoption of these services higher because according to veterinarians, super important. According to pet owners, or as they refer to them in the industry as pet parents. So you gotta be careful. You can't call them owners anymore. They're pet parents. Um, so yeah, anyways tried to help them with the adoption of this. And we came across this idea of wellness plans. So essentially what veterinarians do is they bundle all of these services together, they break it down to monthly payments, and then you have a package and you can pay say 70 bucks a month. And that covers all of your dogs and cats routine um, preventative care. So, mm -hmm. you know, we prototyped that. How can we help them do this? We found that maybe three or four out of 10 veterinary practices had these wellness plans. And we thought they were an absolutely fantastic idea. So we were, we were intrigued by that. We were wondering why it wasn't more uh, prevalent in the industry. And we found out that there was a lot of administrative issues with that. It's really hard to do in terms of billing. It's really hard to implement. And it's hard to keep track of like the services that have been redeemed and the services that are outstanding. Um, all this to say, mm -hmm. we, we create a solution that would make it easy for practices to um, offer wellness plans to their pet parents. Does that make sense so far? Yeah, yeah. I kind of know what you mean. It's almost like uh, the wellness plan is like kind of like insurance for the preventative maintenance care, but you kind of prepay. Yeah, and the biggest difference between a wellness plan and pet insurance is that pet insurance is geared towards emergencies. Wellness plan is geared mm -hmm. at everything that is preventive. So um, when it comes to an emergency, you have these insurance providers and you also have services that help you um, break down the cost over monthly payments. So let's say like you have to do a $3,000 surgery. There are services like scratch pay, for example, that allows you to break those payments down over the next three years, but there was nothing specifically focused at the preventative care measures that you would be uh, undertaking on a regular basis. The more you stay on top of your pet's health, the less likely it is that you're going to have that huge bill. And pet parents really mm -hmm. saw that pet parents were into it. Um, veterans were into it but uh, spoiler alert what ended up happening is that we had to um to shut things down so what ended up happening is that uh during the pandemic we had um we saw our revenue go down to zero completely zero because the uh, government forced veterinary practices to operate on emergency basis only which means that they could only see patients that needed critical attention and given that we were purely preventative there was absolutely nothing that veterinarians could do through Milo, which is the name of our startup and our platform. Um, they couldn't do anything. It was against the law, right? So we saw our revenue go down to zero and essentially we had to make some tough decisions and we had to, uh, to wrap it up. All this to say that I think I've done some, you know, some analysis and I've thought about it afterwards. And I think what, COVID did for us is it, it certainly poured fuel on the fire, but I don't think it was necessarily, um, COVID is not the cause to our demise. I think we made a lot of mistakes or there's a lot of things we should have done differently that could have helped us weather the storm during that, that period with no revenue. Um, but nonetheless, it, mm -hmm. yeah, 
ended up having to, to call it quits. That's very unfortunate as a pet parent myself. Um, she's currently napping at my feet. I know what you mean by the preventative, the preventative care. We took her in for her first round of shots and the doctor is the vet's like, you know, you don't have to necessarily do these other three shots, but they're probably, you know, good to do. I'm like, okay, do them. You know, we'll schedule her, her regular, I was going to say maintenance routine. For her, uh, <laughs> preventative still, care, yeah. I still have my brain on work with submarines, yeah, for preventative care. But uh, that is unfortunate. You mentioned when you go to the eventual end users and you mm-hmm. get like a, a warm response you're actually looking for a hell yeah or a hell no mm-hmm. do you mean hell yeah this is going to be great and then if it's a hell no you're like okay cool we can wrap it up and call it a day uh what i mean actually is when you're creating something that's going to cause like a disruption in the industry you want people to be strongly for it and you want people to be strongly against it and that's just based on their mindset so you're going to have the early adopters those are the people that are going to be like whoa this could really change stuff hell yeah like let's do this and then you're going to have the people that are late adopters or non-adopters and they're super traditional so you, you are threatening how they're currently doing their job so they're going to tell you hell no just because there's a chance that you completely change how they have to do things and they have to relearn everything that they know Right. So it's not necessarily mm-hmm. about wrapping it up. It's about having str- like getting a strong response from your audience just to know that you're on track and you might be disturbing how they're currently doing things. Mm-hmm. OK, so more of you hit a nerve exactly, rather yeah. than. Uh, uh, and then after that startup, mm-hmm. you kept moving, right? No, actually. So I, after that startup, essentially what happened is uh, after we wrapped up that startup, I started to talk to people in the pet care industry. And I found myself in a pretty unique position in the sense that a lot of people that start companies in that space are former or current veterinarians and their business IQ is not necessarily the greatest. Or you have people that come in from the business world and don't know much about the industry. Uh, but given that I had been working you know, very closely with a veterinarian in my partner Cash uh, for two plus years, I had gotten to know the industry quite well, and my background was in business. So I was in a pretty unique position to leverage um, that insight and those skills. So I started to reach out to a lot of startups and scale-ups in the industry. And I was offered a lot of jobs that I thought were dream jobs. Like everything I thought I wanted Mm -hmm. to do, I was offered those jobs and I had those opportunities. And I was just not stoked. I was not pumped about it at all. Um, I had to do it. And I I had to do a bit bit of an introspection and try to figure out why I wasn't pumped by these roles. I thought maybe it was, it was burnout. Like I was burnt out from, from the previous startup. I need to take a bit of time off. So I did that. Um, I played some golf, which turns out was not the best idea because you've golfed with me and you know that if anything, that would compound the stress and not relieve it. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, Golfing isn't about the score. It's about uh, the number of balls that you lose, right? <laughs> yeah, try to keep it below five and Ryan and I are happy. <laughs> what is the difference between a startup and a scale-up? I'm assuming a scale-up is already a small business that's functioning. That's just a matter of kind of making it nationwide. Yeah, I think the definitions are a little bit gray, but essentially just a scale-up is a, uh, a company that has more traction. And you, normally with more traction comes more revenue in a larger team. So this sure. is probably wrong. Like there's probably some, some smarter people that have actually defined this, but to me, anything, anything above say 15, you're starting to get towards the start, the scale up phase. So below 15, you're still in this, in the startup uh, stage. And then as you, as mm-hmm. you gain more revenue, you can expand your team to more than 15 people. Yeah. What, uh, what are some of the lessons you found you learned through your experience in the startup world? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The biggest one was, I'm a super, I'm a super all or nothing type of person. I think um, when I look at something, I'm like, either we're going to do this 110% or we're not going to do it at all. And that's just, uh, that's my character, right? And what you have to do in a startup is that you make sure that you don't, you don't want to be the bottleneck. You don't want to be the choke point. So you want to make sure that you surround yourself with people that have differing views from you and they can counterbalance that. Um, but essentially what that led to was I was super focused on building a company, building systems, building processes that could um, operate with a team of a hundred plus and, we forgot to focus on the present. So I was so focused on building a team of 100 that we never got to 15, right? Mm -hmm. So I was really focused on building software systems that could withstand, you know, a bunch of clients that we just never even got enough traction to like weather the storm that 
in hindsight, like was not like we couldn't have guessed it was going to happen. But if we would have focused more on traction, uh, then we may have been in a better position to weather the storm that that was COVID. Mm, that black swan event that no one sees coming. And then looking back, everyone points to it and goes, yeah, we definitely saw that coming. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what ended up happening is like we focused a lot on on investing, on building, and we just didn't have the traction to um, to to get enough money into the business or to raise money once we got into that tight position because we didn't have the traction to show for it. Um, so if I had to go back, mm-hmm. I definitely focus a lot more on traction. You know, take little steps forward, uh, put one foot in, set, in front of the other instead of just going for the for the hail mary. Mm-hmm. So you said that you're out of the space now. What are you up to now? Yeah, so I actually decided to go back to school and I'm now studying psychology. So when I was having that uh, that little quarter-life crisis that I was alluding to earlier, I started to think, like, what do I do on my free time? What do I do for fun? If, if I'm no longer passionate about marketing, if I'm not passionate about startups, uh, if I don't really care about this industry that I've learned so much about, what is it that I actually care about? Where do my priorities lie? And um, I had been spending a lot of time on philosophy and psychology, uh, super interested in um, reading philosophy, Nietzsche, um, super interested in uh, psychologists like Jordan Peterson. Uh, so yeah, essentially I looked at that and I thought, you know what, like I've been wanting to do this for a while. It's something that had been itching the back of my mind for quite some time that I might be interested in, in psychology. So I just decided to take the first step. I took a free online class on Coursera intro to psychology, um, finished that in a week, loved it. I was like, okay, positive sign. Maybe this is it. Um, and then I, I spoke with people that are close to me, started to ask some questions um, because it's often difficult. We think we know ourselves a lot better than we do. Right. So mm-hmm. um, it's often difficult to kind of, self-analyze and really understand what's best for you. So sometimes you're better off to just come up with some smart questions and ask people around you what they think. So I, I did that and it turns out that nobody was surprised by my desire to go and pursue psychology. Uh, yeah, so long story short, I'm now in school pursuing a degree in psychology and hoping to be a performance psychologist. So either with uh, athletes or business execu- executives or both. Why, why performance, the executives and why the athletes? Mm. Yeah. I really like the idea of helping people get from, say, 95% of their potential to 97%. I think that's where mindset has a huge impact. Um, so if you're looking at professional athletes, like they're already in crazy good shape. Their technique, almost down pat, right? They're really good. How can you help them gain that advantage? A lot of the times it's mindset. Um, so this idea of like helping people perform at a really, really high percentage of their potential is extremely fascinating to me. Also, like I, I just don't think I'm the right person. I don't think I have the right personality to help people that are, you know, operating at 30% of their potential and try to dig them out of the underworld and help them get to 60%. I think that's a job for people braver and smarter than me. Um, I I think my skill set would be better suited to people that are already operating. They're already motivated. I don't need to do anything to motivate them. I just need to um, help them find the tools that help to, for them to help themselves perform at their highest. Mm-hmm. Um, also, mm-hmm. also, coincidentally, I read a book right around the time that I signed up for school called <laughs> Golf is Not a Game of Perfect. And uh, <laughs> you and I know that very well. But it was written by a sports psychologist, uh, Dr. Bob Rotella. And that book blew my mind. Like, it was fascinating. He tells a story um, in the book. It was an NCAA basketball player. And he had this really funny way of looking at free throws. And he was a 50% free throw shooter. Okay. And he would get up to the line. And if he missed the first one, then he'd say, like, I'm a 50% free throw shooter. This one's guaranteed to go in. And then, you know, the psychologist says, like, yeah, well, that's all good and well. But, like, what if you happen to miss the next one? He's like, well, then I'm way overdue and I'm obviously going to make all the next shots I take, right? So it's just this idea that like the mentality that he has definitely helped him achieve such a high percentage um, of his free throws. So that was, that was a big catalyst for me too. That story itself was like, damn, like you can really help people perform at a super high level just by helping them think the right way. Mm-hmm. Taking, giving them the right mental cues instead of kind of focusing on the negative aspects, right? Exactly, yeah. So 
the golf uh, golf is not a game. What did you take away from that book specifically, other than the the, the wanting to help people? But did you take anything from for your golf games that you could uh, improve? <laughs> um, well, the biggest thing for my golf game was tr- not to have like a hundred swing thoughts when I'm on the golf course. A big uh, big thing that he preaches is like practice some techniques on the range, and then when you get on the golf course, just hit the ball. Focus on where you want the ball to go focus on the shape or and have like maximum one swing thought when things start to go really bad for me is when I start to think about 16 things and then just chunk the ball. <laughs> yeah. No, I feel you. I think, I think you, you're even when we're out, you're complaining about you kind of get in your own head right? <laughs> yeah. and you start to pull back on the swing and you start, Oh no, my cues here, my cues there, my cues there. <laughs> Instead of just kind of focusing on hitting the ball, just emptying everything else out of your head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, and I, I definitely feel you, and I feel it's something that applies kind of across all sports. You practice, and you can focus, for example, hockey. You focus on, you know, how to skate, your technique skating. You don't actually focus on how you're skating while you're actually playing the game. That's all kind of muscle memory after that point. Can you imagine trying um, to play hockey? Like, okay, left foot, right foot, like stick handle. Okay, like <laughs> that would be impossible, right? Yet we still try to do it on the golf course. Yeah, exactly. Trying to remember how to take a slap shot when you're, the puck's already coming towards you to take the yeah. one-timer. But yeah, you're totally right on the golf course. You pull back for your swing and you're going, okay, pulling back on the swing. My left hip should kind of pop a little bit. Okay. I got to drive my elbow down instead of just swinging through the ball. Cause if you've already done it for, you know, 10,000 hours on the, the practice range, it should be pretty much ingrained by the time you get out on the yeah, course. And the worst thing is I'm especially bad for this. Like I make decisions during my swing like <laughs> i will start to swing it and then like during my swing i'll be like oh maybe i'll just try to hit it a little bit short so that i let the slope take it down towards the pin or something like that and like i make that decision during my swing and that never ends well for anyone <laughs> there's a, i find golf is very much when you're a beginner and you don't really know what you're doing in terms of swinging you're almost better than by the time you get to the point where you actually know what you're doing because when you know what you're doing you're going okay i'm going to try to put some backspin on this and you're thinking way too hard Whereas as a beginner, you're like, okay, I've got my eight iron. That's about, you know, 120 yards out or whatever. Okay, that's probably fine. You just kind of swing through it and you're fine versus when you're you're uh, a little bit more experienced, you get to the point where like, well, I'm 120 yards out, but I want to get to the back of the green. Got to add a couple more, you know, maybe I should go for, for a seven, try to really get some backspin on it or something. And you're just completely out. And then you get to the expert level where it's all gone again. Yeah, at the start, you have that blissful ignorance and then golf just beats it out of you. Yeah. <laughs> By about the eighth hole when the beer cart comes around when that starts to kind of get back to you get back to yeah it. F- funny aside i hit all of my worst shots in front of the cart girl all the time that is a fact <laughs> it's because you're getting in your own 100%. head for me it's always the first hole and the tenth hole because they're right in front of where everybody else is getting ready to go oh, yeah. and uh it for some reason that's where the pressure hits and when you're off in the back there's nothing but for my work golf tournament um I was teeing off in front of a bunch of the directors <laughs> and uh, my director mentioned it. He goes, Oh, this is Ryan. You know, he's, he's one of, he's, I know him. He's good. Oh, no. He's good. And you know me and my tea, my, my tee, when I tee off with a wood, it goes about 20 <laughs> yards. And uh, yeah, that was super embarrassing. He's like, we'll just pretend we didn't see that. I'm like, that's cool. Whatever. I'm going to find somewhere else. To Are you still in the same branch of government or did you feel the need to change after that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel like, by the time we go to do our golf tournament next year, it, they'll they'll hopefully have forgotten. Or, it. or you'll have um, done. Make, yeah, yeah. I'm just going to make sure that I'm not doing it, t- teeing off in front of the directors yeah. again, because yeah, you want to talk pressure. It wasn't as bad with the rest of the game because I was with people from my team. Um, but yeah, teeing off in front of your bosses isn't always the the best. That's look. funny. Um, so you mentioned the the golf book. What other golf? What other books did you find kind of help? guide you towards the psychology path mm. i've read a lot of dostoevsky uh crime and punishment notes from underground those are absolutely mind-blowing have you read dostoevsky at all by the way i'm curious i've been meaning to ask you this for a while no no i have do not. yourself a favor pick up crime and punishment um yeah, yeah. that's absolutely fantastic book um i i don't it hasn't necessarily impacted my my desire to, to pursue psychology but it's really impacted my worldview and my thoughts. Um, I, we could probably do an entire episode mm-hmm. on, on Dostoevsky and and kind of the philosophy that that he plays with in his in his novels. But absolutely love those books. I really quite like Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil. Um, that's that's a tough read. Nietzsche's a tough read. Um, 
he says, I can say in one sentence what others take entire books and yet can't say. Um, and also he's been said to philosophize with a hammer. So he's a, he's the type of, of guy that you, you read it and you just sit on your couch for like four hours. Like what is life? Right. And it's, it's, it's kind of funny yeah. actually, because after reading that book, I think you and I spoke and I was like, man, reading this book just absolutely makes you question everything. And you had, you had a really good response to that. You said something about your personal philosophy. Do you remember what you said? Man, uh, I, I remember if you don't. Go ahead. I, I do yeah, not remember. You said something along, along the lines of like, yeah, you know what? My personal philosophy is just do what makes you happy as long as it doesn't take away from other people's happiness, which, which I, I really yeah, love because yeah. it's like it's a beautiful mixture of like, um, like just follow your bliss and also like the do unto others uh, as you would have others do unto you. Like that, that's perfect. I love that. And that was the most calming thing you could have said to me after that. So um, that was fantastic. If anybody is interested in Nietzsche, like just be ready. Um, maybe have Ryan on speed dial. Maybe he can talk you off a ledge because um, that's a heavy read. Same with uh, another book that, that comes to mind is the Gulag Archipelago. Um, I don't know if you and I have spoken about it since I finished it. But. I think... Oh, not since you finished it. I think I think we spoke about it while you're in the middle of, of Yeah, reading. so this book is written by uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and he was um, a prisoner of the Soviet gulag system. And it's basically his account of um, the USSR and the, the, uh, the gulag archipelago. And wow, if you have the mental fortitude to read it, I would strongly recommend it. It's absolutely an incredibly written, but it's tough. It's really tough. It really shows you, um, you and I talked about this, how far the left can go, right? And I, I don't necessarily want to get too political here, but it's quite evident to, to us. And it's really obvious when the right goes too far. Um, this account really shows you how obvious it is when the left goes too far and um, how bad it can get. Oh, for sure. And it's one of those things that... Um it looks like it's a straight line across if you want to just specifically, if you want to look at just the left and the right, because there's so many political, uh, if you want to just look at the most basic left and right, you go too far to either side and it almost becomes a U come back towards the middle mm. and not towards the center, but towards each polar opposite is very, very much more alike than we we'd like to think. And the further in either direction you go, um, you, it eventually becomes authoritarian no matter which way you go. Uh, and I think a lot of people kind of forget that. I think I mentioned this on the last episode. My, my, uh, my dad's favorite political quote is any good politician is like a good golf drive. It's just straight down the middle. Um, you and I know nothing about that. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't play golf from the fairway. I'm usually in the rough. My dad, brother and I go out yearly for uh, just, playing around for my for uh, father's day with my dad and uh it's hilarious because we can play it and i will guarantee you none of the balls will hit the fairway it's all off to the left or off to the right we're playing from behind a tree um and we still all somehow manage to get back to the green one way or another but we've the carts are never on the fairway you know or we never really set foot on the fairway the entire yeah, time you're just creative that's but, all. <laughs> yeah creative crack what is it problems uh modern problems require modern there you solutions go. um yeah so you seem to be really interested in kind of the russian mm. russian literature yeah. yeah i've been quite fascinated by it recently um it, yeah it all started with dostoevsky i think i think one of the reasons i'm so interested in dostoevsky is he explores he explores what carl jung would call um the shadow so essentially like carl jung has this idea that within us, we all have a shadow. So it's this idea that we all have repressed thoughts and feelings, and we all have this deep rooted evil within us. And it sounds super pessimistic to talk about that and to say like, you know, we all have this great capacity for evil, but it's, it's important and it's actually empowering. And Jordan Peterson talks about this too. He says like, um, Jordan, and I'm quoting Jordan, he says, I could have been a guard in a Nazi camp and so could you and you could have been happy to do it right and that's an mm -hmm. absolutely horrifying thought to meditate on absolutely horrifying guaranteed if you sit on it for long enough you will lose sleep as I did um, but the the use in meditating on that is to really realize that if you do have the potential for evil within you then so does your neighbor and so does everybody else and what that leads you to do is 
fight with all your being against this evil, right? So if you realize that you and your neighbor are evil, you will do absolutely everything you can in your power to make sure that evil doesn't manifest, right? So there's there's this other quote, and I I'm paraphrasing, and I can't remember uh, who the attribution is, but it's something along the lines of there's two wolves living inside of you, one good, one bad. The one that survives is the one you feed, right? So yeah. if we all realize that we have this deep-seated um, capacity for evil, we better freaking make sure that we're feeding the good wolf every single day. For sure. I think that's a native that's a, or an Aboriginal. I'm not entirely caught up on what the proper term is yet or indigenous. North, North American, um, but yeah. I think that's it's a proverb from uh, from from the native community. But, yeah, and um, yeah, that, that's why I'm so interested in reading these accounts of um, people that not to to get geeky, but like people that have gone to the dark side, right? So I think it's it's really important to understand how slippery the slope is, and to make sure that we never ever open up that tool shed. Like, let's keep those things locked really really securely in that tool shed because it's it's easy it's easy to go down that that slippery slope yeah we've seen it a lot recently i mean you want to specifically in our own backyards the uh it was the the the, what's it called the the residential schools it doesn't it it feels like for us at least because we learned about it in school that must be ancient history but there's people alive today who were who like remember the residential schools i think the last one even closed in the Mm -hmm. 90s um, but yeah, and, and you ask somebody who worked at the residential school, they probably would have told you that they think that they're doing the right thing for these people. But looking back, you're, well, that wasn't the case at all. And then you, you can go to those other extreme examples of in history, like the the Nazis and the guards at the camps, and you go, well, you know, they they probably thought that they were doing the right thing at the time. Mm-hmm. And then looking back, they might have either got caught up in the in the the political the political um, landscape, or they the just caught up in something or it was just, you know, I'm doing my job. What, what, what's the issue with me sitting here processing this paperwork? It's not really hurting anybody, but realistically that paperwork is leading to um, the deaths of, of millions yeah, and, of and, um, and Sorry. The catalyst to that is often just like indifference or ignorance. Um, it, it makes me think of a Marcus Aurelius quote, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but he says something in, along the lines of, and you can do evil by, um, doing nothing or saying nothing or something along those lines, right? And, you know, for a lot of these people in, in Germany and in the USSR, for example, like it just starts by turning a blind eye to what's happening. And then you're a little bit more likely to take a small step in participating. And it's, it, they don't wake up one morning and decide that they want to be evil. It's just they they start by lying they st- or they start by believing the lie. They start by lying themselves. And then from there, there's no telling where to lead yeah and it's it's little steps and even then i mean you look at some of the stuff happening now you look at the QAnon <laughs> conspiracies mm-hmm. going around online and realistically it's it's coming from a, a place of of fear but the people who believe in it are, are genuinely trying to do the right thing and that they think that there's a i think it's a pedophile ring is deep undercover in government or something like that i don't know which government i don't even know if they i think it's the u.s government but i think they yeah. can isn't there the involvement isn't it the involvement of lizard people in the QAnon theory as well like something along the lines of like probably yeah, <laughs> something like that I, I may be totally off base with that but i i think there is do you think but it's the same kind of thing yeah do you think that the lockdown and the fact that we've all been isolated has made people more conspiratorial because that that's yeah 100 I think I think before this, you would have got together with a group of people. You would have had that one guy that says, hey, I read this thing on Facebook that says X, Y, and Z. And everybody else looks at him and goes, man, why are you reading that on Facebook? Don't like stop. <laughs> yeah. But now Facebook and you know Instagram and Reddit and the media and all those sites have become people's social interaction. And that becomes, and it becomes that hive mind where you get, you know, nobody thinks that the world is a, is a, uh, is a waffle cracker or something like that, except for these 11 people in the world who, ordinarily wouldn't be talking to each other but now because of the internet we can all get together and talk about how yeah it's actually this waffle thin cracker that's going to crack in 23 years because of the salt we're mining out of the earth but you know if i told you that when we're golfing you'd be like ryan come on like wake up a little bit like get your head out of the sand yeah but you know i think people are really bored and they're looking for things to entertain themselves on or with rather um and i think what happens is 
in the real world, you're more exposed to people with um, conflicting opinions. When you're surfing the internet, it's really, really easy to find yourself in echo chambers, right? It's, it's so mm -hmm. easy for you to say something and then surround yourself with people that share your opinion. Um, you're, that, that's that's much less the case in real life because with any good group of friends, you'll have people that are that have very different mindsets than you and that are they're willing to to debate you on stuff. But if you're just browsing the internet, you'll just keep looking for for things that affirm your biases. So I think it's yeah, I think that's definitely a component to it. Oh yeah, and speaking of that, that leads me to another question I have. What did you think of of the GameStop saga? Because that that was an echo chamber <laughs> that uh, that cost some people some money. Um, I'm very happy that I watch from a distance. I treated this, <laughs> I treated this as a social experiment. The reason the reason I didn't buy in is because I didn't trust people to hold. I really didn't yeah. like this whole thing was predicated on the fact that like people had to stay strong and hold their positions through the highs and lows. And I just did not trust people to do that. So I was like, you know what, let me just watch from a distance. And turns out that that was probably the right play. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I bought at a hundred, I think it was on the way back down. Part of me is like, Oh, why'd I do that? The other part of me, I've spent waste. Like I've bought way stupider things for a hundred dollars that I've never actually used. I have, I think $85 worth of Yu-Gi-Oh cards sitting around my office right now. <laughs> um, so whatever, but um, yeah, I do. The, the thing people forget is it's, and it's not like I blew my life savings yeah. on it. Um, the thing people forget too, I think about it is that there is the much bigger players kind of participating in this um, on both sides of, of the, of the trade than the retail investor. The retail investor might be the person that thinks he's the one doing it. But at the end of the day, like the share that I have, the five shares that Timmy down the street has is nothing compared to these, these, uh, these private equity firms that can come in, see the exact same thing that we're seeing and buy, you know, billion dollars worth of stock to, to do with it what it pleases. Yeah, exactly. I didn't feel like I, I had enough knowledge of everything that was implicated to have a distinct advantage. Like when I take, um, when I make investments that are disproportionately risky, I, try to make sure that I have knowledge or experience or expertise that kind of mitigates that risk and gives me an advantage over um, other people that are, that are assuming the same positions or the contrary positions. I just didn't feel like that was the case. And that's the exact reason why I'm not uh, investing in cryptocurrency right mm -hmm. now, um, which is a subject that you and I have talked a lot about. I just don't know enough about it, man. Like I'm, I'm just not that smart. I don't know enough about cryptocurrency. I don't feel like I have an advantage. I may miss out, but I would way rather miss out than to try to um, try to jump into something that I don't fully understand. Definitely. I, the thing I understand is that the economy is a beast and will do its thing. Yeah. So I'm just going to give it, I'm just going to throw my money at that and let it do a thing. But every time that I feel like I'm like, oh yeah, exactly. That's what I thought Bitcoin was going to do. It does the opposite. It's up at $50,000 now. And then I think I sent you the, the, the Nicholas Taleb, uh, couple yes, posts that yes. he made about it that it's just so it's way too volatile to be something that can that can really undermine a new kind of era of currency across the world and uh, i was like yeah exactly i'm not stupid yeah I, this um, i have one of my this mathematician you're talking about mm -hmm. yeah i have this good friend that uh he currently lives in australia but i worked with him in in vancouver and uh he sent me a message a couple of weeks ago he's like phil like i have the hot tip for you he's like you need to buy this cryptocurrency and, and this coin he's like this is the next one like i promise you you're going to get rich i just want you to have the same size you had as me okay like i love you and i want you to get in on this and he's like just read the white paper and he sends me like a 37 page document i'm like if i need 37 pages to understand why this is a good investment i'm i'm out like i know i i don't want to do it right so i think to people that are willing to commit the resources and the time to really fully understand the intricacies of the space like all the power to you man like if you know something that i don't you deserve to win this game like get rich please but i just don't have the time or honestly um the desire to to spend all of my attention on trying to understand the world that is cryptocurrency no, it doesn't pass the Warren Buffett test. Can you explain it to me on a napkin with a crayon? No, uh, I'm going to be leery about it. Though. Yeah, t tell me like I'm a, like Michael Scott would say. Say it like I'm a nine year old. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Explain it like I'm five. Yeah, maybe that's it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I butchered the cryptocurrency stuff. Yeah, no, it's okay. The cryptocurrency stuff is ridiculous. So, have you read what's the like what's the most recent book that you that you've read or that you'd recommend to people? <sighs> Okay, those are two different things because the most recent book that I've read was actually 
in my opinion, overhyped. So the, the most recent book that I just finished was um, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Um, I heard so much hype about that, and I was a little bit disappointed, to be honest. And, you know, that, that's, that's probably due to the fact that I read him right after reading Dostoevsky, and, you know, nobody stands a chance against Dostoevsky. Um, so that's my most recent one. I'd say 7 out of 10. Check it out for sure. It's interesting concept, but it's not going to blow your mind like I thought it was. Um, but the one book that I would recommend to people, and you're going to agree with me on this, is Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Uh, that, mm -hmm. that just that's the fact that that has stood the test of time um it's it's the bible to stoicism it's incredible and it was written by someone who didn't want to be famous this you're reading his diary essentially he didn't none of this was supposed to he didn't think any of this would get out um he didn't want to be famous he wasn't writing from a place of being like well this is going to change the world he was writing in, in a place of you know what i need to get this out and onto a paper kind of kind of idea and it just it's it, it is yeah you're right it's the buy i've got it on my on my nightstand actually yeah and i flip through it every, and every once like in a while. as the title suggests like i absolutely love the fact that like it's a meditation right like you can tell that he's writing this in order to remind himself of things that he's learned or things that he knows right and he's writing it like mm -hmm. don't forget to do this or like don't be like this and yeah it's it's a field manual i i absolutely love it written by the person who is the polar opposite of the saying power absolute power corrupts absolutely yes um an emperor of rome 2000 years ago he you know was essentially groomed from a child the emperor picked him out and then chose a uh chose a man to then teach him everything he knew kind of thing and it was uh yeah yeah 100 on meditation i will disagree with you on brave new world though you liked it um I was, I was trying not to laugh while you're telling, while you're talking about it. Cause I'm sitting here and on, I've got like floating bookshelves in my mm -hmm. office and next to me is a copy. I, I bought a copy of the brave of uh, brave new world. Cause I liked it. Beautiful hardcover edition. It's sitting there. I don't think I've read that version, that hardcover okay. edition. Um, I just really wanted a copy of it cause I read it in school and I found, I really liked it, but that might've been the problem. I read it in school when I was still very like in high school, when I was still very impressionable and we had to sit there and analyze mm -hmm. everything in the book yeah but um, to be fair like i've read a lot of the classic literature books that you read or that you would read in high school um recently and i absolutely mm -hmm. love them this is just not one of them like 1984 fantastic book catcher in the rye fantastic book this one maybe it just didn't strike a chord with me maybe it didn't come into my life at the right time it wasn't a bad book by any means it was just a little bit underwhelming because i had heard so much hype about it yeah. um, that's fair i read i think that happened to me with the old man in the sea i read it way too early yeah. And uh, everybody's talking about this fantastic book. It's an amazing book. It'll change your. It'll change your life. I looked at it, and it's you know, it's like I'm not going to say 20 pages, but it's a very thin book. And uh, I read it again in high school for a book report, thinking that this was going to be this insane book. And I was like, I didn't get the same meaning from it that all these other people clearly, clearly got from it. To me, it was a story about a guy fishing. There was some subtext to it, but I might. I just wasn't wasn't ready to 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 get the meaning or yeah. Whatever. Have you um, read The Alchemist? Yes, actually, I just finished that last. What do you think? Um, same thing as the as as I think you're feeling with Brave New mm. World. If I had gotten it ten years ago, you know, fifteen years ago, and it hurts to say that because I know fifteen years ago I still would have been able to like read it, um, and I would have been almost fourteen, thirteen at that time, which makes me feel old. Um, I think it would have been more impressionable on me back then than it was now. So so funny um, enough, what did you I read that one last year. And it blew my mind. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. Yeah. And it's just, I think it's a matter of where you are in your life mm -hmm. too, when you get it. So I got in that before going to university or just after finishing university when I was unemployed for a while, I think it would have been quite different, but yeah, I, I've had the same feeling that you did with Brave New World. Where I read it. I was like, it was a good book. Um, at times it felt very repetitive in terms of the messaging and it felt very, overt in terms of really pounding into your really really coming across what it was trying to get what it was trying right. to it was you. not subtle but with the philosophy smuggling <laughs> no no and i would definitely recommend it to people and it'll definitely be a book that uh that my future kids will have on their bookshelf because i i want them to read it when they're yeah. a kid but speaking of books did you yeah. see that ryan holiday announced a new book this morning i think it was i did i got the email on the day my daily stoic yeah. email um that's about Marcus Aurelius, mm -hmm. I think. Yes, right? yes, as a, as I understand it, it is. I'm pumped for that. I've I've read all of his yeah. books up to now. 
I got my first copy of his book for my birthday, the the, the Daily Stoic, mm-hmm. the, the 366 right. pages of kind of one day. And uh, I really enjoy that. And that's just me, like you said, being a nerd with philosophy and kind of having a thought a day, essentially, to sit and think about during your day or at night. Yeah, we, we've kind of circled the, the topic of stoicism. I know that's something that we're both quite interested in. Do we, do we want to dive into that a little bit? Yeah, we can dive into it if you want to. It's, it's totally up to you. Like I said, if this takes as long as it takes, or we can do it uh, a more in-depth version. But if you want to quickly go talk about it a little bit, and uh, and we'll do another episode on stoicism specifically, because I have a feeling that could last. Uh, if, if we start going on it now, it'll be, you know, it's... 4 30 yeah. right now we started an hour ago we'll be here till 10 30 at night oh yeah for sure how long do you normally like to keep these episodes usually give or take about an hour whenever the conversation dies really um and i don't know if <laughs> i you can talk for 10 hours i can talk for 10 hours about stoicism so maybe we earmark it exactly over the summer i'll have to put a mic in a golf bag and we'll go out for the golfing uh, we'll go out golfing <laughs> and for four hours we'll record our thoughts and i'll try to take it all the way like, i was just about to say that is not like parental discretion advised if we do record on the golf course <laughs> <laughs> um okay so maybe we, we earmark the, the stoicism conversation but i know that uh when you and i were setting this up there's another thing that i wanted to chat about and it was you know, it looks like we're on, on the tail end of it right now in terms of the the quarantine and the lockdown, but we never know. We might be launched right back into it. So I was curious um, if you were open to kind of have a discussion on um, tips or techniques that you've found to help during uh, quarantine. I know I have a couple written down, but I'm super curious if you have any ideas or thoughts on, on what has helped you during isolation. Yeah. Um, so I think the biggest one for me, and it's going to sound lame, but I'm kind of a hermit to begin with. So the difference between quarantine life and like pre-quarantine and post-quarantine life for me wasn't huge. I wasn't someone that was out on every Friday, every Saturday seeing people. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a much, much less regular occurrence. I mean, Lee and I would go to eat a little bit more often. We'd go to see a movie or something like that. But typically uh, my social life isn't as active as I know some people are at a bar every single weekend. Inside, I'm like 50 already. Mm-hmm. And uh, nine o'clock, right around nine o'clock, 9.30 every night, I start to really lose steam. Um, but and I told you this at the beginning of quarantine. So because of my work, I have a team of 10 people underneath me. Um, that March 15th date on the Sunday um, before going into the office on March 16th and telling everybody to take your laptops and go home. And we're not going to see necessarily see each other face to face for, we thought, a couple months. Um, we're going on to a year now. I had a panic attack mm. and it was brutal. And uh, I'd never had one before. But luckily, Leah was with me and she was able to kind of talk me through it and uh, kind of help me and after that um you know i i like i told you i found the philosophy and kind of the questioning things and the stoicism really 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 helped especially reading meditations and reading about marx really knowing he went through a 14 year quarantine essentially mm, yeah um, and uh yeah i just found reading and escaping so being able to pick up a book and you know traveling to the game of thrones world or traveling to um, i think it's sweden which is the girl in the dragon tattoo or going around the world with James Bond in those books, which again, I've said it every time I say them, there are words in those books. You definitely are not cool to print now, um, but great books regardless. Yeah. Um, but I found, yeah, I, I dove into books a lot more um, and being out in nature. I, I live in an area where I can be in the summer. I can be on a trail in a five to 10 minute drive with the dog. Um, and in the winter, there's a couple little foresty trails around us too, that we can walk to. And it was a million times more helpful to be able to go out with a dog and and have a half an hour walk in the morning and a half an hour walk 45 minutes at night regardless of the weather it's like the nordic uh, the nordic people say that there's no such thing as a bad day for weather it's just a bad way to dress um and having the dog i found that out you know bundling up in 15 layers because it's minus 40 out but she can't feel it because she's fluffy. yeah how did you how did you find that you you were able to kind of come to terms with yeah it. um can i can i ask a follow-up question just real quick i'm, I'm super curious yep. about this yep. um is there anything specific that leah said to help you out or was it just having her presence and and just like her being who she is um was soothing to you just, yeah her being who she okay. is uh, the word breathe helped a lot um just make sure that i was breathing because that's that was a big one was i was starting to hyperventilate she's like no 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 calm breath you know in and out mm-hmm. 
and in. And we've done meditations before where you've got the guided meditation to breathe. So she kind of knew how to explain that, you know, in two, three, out two, three. Right. Okay. And uh, it was able to help me control my breath. But uh, yeah, for those of you who aren't sure, but I'm pretty sure the five people that listen to this know exactly who we are. We've been together for almost a decade now. Um, so it was, it's just having her there. And it's also really weird. I went snowboarding last weekend and I was away for essentially a full day and it just felt odd mm. not having kind of her energy there, but yeah, having her energy in the room with me going through the panic attack and just, yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, her being who she is really, really yeah. helped me. Have, have you had them since? If you don't want me asking, like if you don't want to talk about it, we can move on. No. Okay. That's good. No, 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 I don't mind talking about it. I'm an open book, but uh, I haven't really had them since. There's been a couple nights where I'm like, oh man, I've got this really heavy thing on mm. my chest. What is it? Um, then you, I just breathing exercises through it. And I found exercising helped a lot as well. Yeah. Mm. Kind of getting all that extra energy out of someone who's constantly twitching. We'll be watching a movie and Leah's like, you've, you've, moved, you've been moving your foot for half an hour straight, just like vibrating it left and right. Can you please like stop doing that just for five seconds? I'm like, oh, sorry. I didn't, I didn't notice that I was doing it, but I've, I've got a lot of energy to begin with. So being able to burn that energy off um, before going to bed and just kind of being exhausted by the time that you're in bed really really helps putting the phone down too yeah the exercise is a big um, one for me like that's that's huge having a strict um daily exercise protocol is absolutely uh imperative mm-hmm. yeah um yeah i have i have a few that that i've written down here that that have helped me and for me the toughest part wasn't so much the isolation in very much like you i'm i'm actually an introverted person and i quite enjoy my alone time what I found to be slightly more challenging was just the uncertainty in the air, right? Like life as we knew it, mm-hmm. like, probably never going to come back. So there's a lot of what ifs and, uh, you know, a lot of uncertainty in the air. And that, that was the hardest part for me. And um, that, that kind of brings to mind a Marcus Aurelius quote. And he says something along the lines of like, you have power over your mind, not outside events, realize this and you'll find strength or something like that. And basically just that sentence alone is super soothing to me, right? Because you're like, okay, what can I control that is right in front of me right now? Like, and mm-hmm. everything else can't control. Can't control when lockdowns are going to end. Can't control if I'm like, you know, I can do everything I can in my power to make sure I don't get COVID. But if I do, then like, so be it, right? Like, I can't do anything about it anymore. How can I make sure I don't spread it to other people, right? So anyways, all of this focusing on your own, on things that are tangible and controllable and leaving the rest up to God, universe, nature, whatever. Um, that's really helped me. Um, a big thing for me too is like taking responsibility. That's been huge. That's that's really um, a core tenet of my personal philosophy. It's, you know, take accountability, be responsible, I, I was once told there's a big difference between fault and responsibility. So might not be my fault that we're in this situation, but it's my responsibility to make the best of it, right? It's my responsibility to make sure that my health doesn't suffer. It's my responsibility to make sure that my professional life doesn't suffer. It's my responsibility to make sure that X, Y, and Z don't suffer because of events that are outside of my control. So, you know, taking responsibility, um, there's this quote, I can't remember for the life of me who said this. He says something along the along lines of like a question that he often asks himself is, how am I complicit in creating the conditions which I say don't desire, right? And if you just sit back and think about that, like mm-hmm. what am I doing today that uh, contributes to things that I say I don't like? For example, I don't like that I am overweight, for example, but you're eating three bags of chips a day. You're okay, so you're complicit in, in creating those conditions that you don't like. Right. So just having that level of, of awareness and introspection can really be helpful. And you can start to jot those things down. So, you know, don't like my current weight. Okay. Here's all the things that I'm doing right now that contribute to this and you tackle them one by one. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, another idea that that's been quite helpful to me is an idea from Ryan holiday. And uh, it's the idea of a live time versus dead time. Have you come across this? Okay. Not so yet. basically he talks about, there's there's two types of of managing your time there's like this dead time when it's basically you know you're zoning out you're letting things happen to you you're watching netflix you're doing whatever you're letting life come to you and then there's a lot there's a lifetime where you're taking charge you're being conscious like you're learning all that stuff so essentially all of us were told you have to stay home um some of us lost our jobs some of us have had to go through major life changes how do you make sure you're making this a lifetime 
right? So it's really like I have empathy and it's really easy for people to get beat up and to be like, man, like I just want to take a week and watch Netflix. But like you have to fight that. You have to you have to fight that and you have to think like how can I make the best of this shitty situation? Right? Yeah, and it's it's a spiral, right? You do watch a one series on Netflix. Oh, you know, whatever. It's just tonight I'm going to watch back to back to back to back episodes of the flash because that's what we're currently <laughs> working our way through next thing you know the next day like well yesterday i watched all the flash i'm gonna watch I'll, I'll do it it's fine it's fine two days in a row is nothing next thing you know you're looking back you're like well it's been three months i haven't done i was supposed to be working out every day after dinner you know i wanted to get two or three household chores done every day so that on the weekend i could have a little bit more relaxing time but yeah the same kind of thing where are you are you letting life come to you are you letting things happen to you or are you are you the one doing it if that makes yeah, sense is it exactly. are you doing actions that'll in 10 years from now you're gonna look back and go, you know i'm really glad that i went outside and walked a kilometer a day during the pandemic because i was able to stave off the heart disease that runs in my family i was able to keep a healthy yeah. weight in 15 years you're gonna look back and go you know i was really happy that um despite the fact that maybe i didn't have a, I didn't have my current job my my job was you know i was furloughed um and staying at home all day i was really glad that instead of just you know going down that netflix hole or whatever i sat down and for 15 minutes a day i worked on a book that became an hour a day i worked on a book and then a year and a half later i sold that book and now yeah. i'm an author um we all know where we want to be but it's really hard to get there because it's usually we think of these big steps but like you said doing a full circle back to the startup um conversation was you want to have little little steps to get there you know maybe you want to be president maybe you want to be prime minister but you don't just run for prime minister you don't just run for president there's a lot of little steps yeah, to get the way there if you get feel it. like you're off track like negotiate with yourself do one little thing just a tiny thing and th this this goes back to like jordan peterson's idea of like clean your room i know you alluded to this in, in one of your previous episodes and and we laughed about it afterwards but like there's something to that man like just do one little thing if you're if you smoke, you're an alcoholic and a drug addict and like you can't solve all of those overnight. So like start by doing one little thing that'll change your environment and hopefully you have the snowball effect, right? Clean your room. Your room is now clean. You feel better. You slept better. Okay, go for a walk in the morning. That gives you a bit of momentum, gives you some energy. Don't have a cigarette on that walk. Okay, that's, that's a small win. Those things compound, man. You don't have to fix your entire life overnight. You do one little thing at a time and eventually you'll get to where you want to be and you'll look back and you'll be like, holy shit, how did I do this? That's why they, that's why a lot of New Year's resolutioners don't necessarily make it is they try to make these big jumps instead of, you know, every month I'm going to make one little change. This month I'm going to make my bed every single day. Cool. Now that's a routine. I make my bed every single morning. You know, what's the next thing I'm going to do? I'm going to run five kilometers every second day or something like that. But uh yeah, it's definitely, it's a snowball effect one way or the other, but it's a lot more difficult to make it a positive snowball effect, but it's definitely worth yeah, it. Yeah, and you know, I, I preach on this because that's that's the one lesson that I've had to learn because like I mentioned earlier, I'm I'm an all or nothing kind of guy and I, I want results immediately. I want to throw everything at it and I want to fix it right away. And that's, that's the lesson I've had to learn. Just one foot in front of the other. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, there's countless millionaires in Canada and the US but uh, none of these people was it typically isn't overnight it's somebody who sat down whether they were 20 25 30 35 they started putting a little bit of money aside every single year every single paycheck just a little bit off the top a little bit off the top that goes to sit there and build next thing you know they go to retire you know 45 before any other co-workers and it's because instead of spending it all they kept a little bit off the top a little bit off the top enough to retire um, a little bit early, but uh, which the latte effect for anybody having issues with money. Great, great read. Another very easy read, um, but kind of like some of the other books we've talked about has an underlying philosophy of, you know, but instead of buying that coffee every day, put that into something that's just going to slowly grow and you'll, uh, you can retire a little bit earlier than you thought, or you won't have to yep, work for I it. I dig it. Life. It's like the well simple tagline is something like uh, get rich slow. That's what it is actually. Yeah, it's never sexy. There's never a movie based on Get Rich Slow, but uh, don't know if it's a quote by him or not, but I saw one. It was on Instagram, so it probably wasn't. Um, but it was, you know, war somebody asked Warren Buffett, like, why don't, why doesn't everybody do what you did to get rich? And he goes, well, it's because not everybody can can do the, it's, it's not sexy to go slow um, or 
I think it's TI. There's a beginning of a song and it's a, I think it's TI is being interviewed and he's like, what's it like to be an overnight success? And he laughs and he goes overnight. I've been working for this for 10 years. Like nothing's overnight. Yeah. I love how you can go from quoting Warren Buffett to TI so seamlessly. (laughs) That was incredible. (laughs) I'm a man man of of many worlds. All right. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm definitely going to have you back on. We'll talk specifically philosophy on the next one, but this was a pretty good intro intro episode. Um, So thank you. Pleasure was all mine. Maybe for the philosophy chat, we do scotch instead of coffee. Yeah, I'd be down. Scotch, whiskey, bourbon. Hey, thanks for listening to the episode. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, by all means, drop me a line on Instagram or through the Anchor app. You can drop me a voice memo and I can listen to it and respond to you on the podcast. And if you have any ideas for guests for me to come on and have a conversation with, drop me a line and let me know who you think you'd like to hear. Please also go check out the other podcast episodes that I've done. I've got three others with guests and one where I just kind of do a Q&A of questions that I've got over the first month of doing the podcast. So I really appreciate all the support, everybody. Please share the podcast with anybody that you think might enjoy these conversations I'm having with uh, my guests or the conversations I'm having with myself. Um, And have a great week, everyone.